with you, I go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be picking it up here this morning. We're Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing our series here that we've been in uh, Wow, for, for a good while now. I'm not sure exactly when we started this, but it's been a while. Uh, we're in Ephesians 6. We're picking up there in verses 5 through 9. And what we're doing this morning is really seeing how, how the gospel, when it comes into our lives, and we're going to talk about that word, the gospel, a lot. And we, it's not, it's not, that's not unusual. We, we say the word gospel here a lot. But as we, as we consider the gospel this morning, we want to consider how it really does impact, how it really does come into, into every aspect of our lives. Right? Like it doesn't just come in on Sundays, it doesn't just come in on, on special occasions, it comes in to not only every aspect of our lives, but especially every relationship in our lives. And so if you would, uh, if you're willing and able, I'd ask you to just stand with me as we look together there in Ephesians 6, uh, starting in verse 5 this morning, and we're going to go through verse 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we, as we just sang, Come thou fount of every blessing, Lord, we look to you as the fountain of every blessing even now, as we come to your word, as we come to this, this time, as we continue in worship, we're looking to you. Uh, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're looking to you, Jesus, to, to make your word living for us this morning. Or to shape and to fashion us into the people you'd have us be. Your people. And so do that now, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Lord, awaken our souls that we could just be here and be present with you. And we pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been making our way uh, through this last section of Ephesians for the past couple of weeks, following along with Paul, seeing again how the gospel of Jesus Christ, how the, how the good news of Jesus Christ, so Jesus is the gospel. Let's just be upfront about that. When we say gospel, primarily what we're talking about is Jesus. That's, that's who we are talking about and how that good news of Jesus is not just something that you believe. Like it's not just a set of principles or standards or even rules that you agree with, but, but what we've seen is how the true gospel, how when that comes into the life of a believer, what we've seen is how, is how it really transforms every aspect of the life of a believer. And that transformation begins in the ordinary. Like that's where it begins. It begins on the ground, in the basics. It begins right there in those, in those elemental parts of life, those common parts of life, the most regular parts of life, the most everyday parts of our life. Like the gospel has something to say about the mundane realities of our daily existence. And, and the vehicle that Paul's using here to communicate to us, and it's been through Ephesians 5 and it's continuing here in Ephesians 6, the vehicle he's using to communicate that is, 
is the relationships that we have both with one another and and with the world around us. So as the gospel takes root and God continues to sanctify us, right? To sanctify us in this life. Helping us to die more and more unto sin and to live more and more unto righteousness. It comes and brings with it this transformation of our most fundamental relationships. We saw this in, again in chapter 5, and we're seeing it here in chapter 6. It's, it's all believers in relationship with one another, right? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it said in 521. And he starts there with the church. He begins with all of us as believers. And then it was husbands and, and wives. And then it was parents and children. And now, as we come to it today, it's this relationship between bond servants and masters. And this can seem... Now, this can seem strange to us as we sit here today. I, I once had a class at USC um, called Introduction to American Religion. Uh, I was one of those people who, who did, um, like, I was a history and religious studies major at a very secular state university. So it was an interesting dynamic there. Wasn't a whole lot of, like, true reform doctrine being taught in the old uh, USC religious studies department. But anyway, I remember this one class, uh, the Introduction to American Religion. It was fascinating. Like, and I still remember uh, being in that class. It was very early into the semester. I was an underclassman, and I, I don't know if it was just a mean trick played on me by my advisor or whatever. They signed me up for this like upper uh, classman level course. And so I'm sitting there as like, you know, an 18-year-old kid listening to this discussion about, about American religion. And I remember this, uh, this one student, she, she, she made this, it was like the second day of class, and she made this statement that she could never support a faith or a religion that advocated for slavery. That was what she said. And I was like, yep, I mean, that's right. That's no good. We're not going to sign up for that. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with you, right? And she went on for a while. And it was like, I don't know if you've ever had, it was like an uncomfortable amount of time that she talked in class. You ever had that? We're like, it was a small class. There was like 10 of us in there. And so it was, it was pretty intimate. So she just kind of kept going. And like every once in a while, you thought she was landing the plane. You know that feeling? And like, but it didn't. It just like took back off. She was doing touch and goes all day. And then the professor's sort of waiting for her to stop talking, but she's just going off. And honestly, I was with her. Like the whole class was with her. I'm like, yes, you know, like exactly. I'm pretty sure at some point, someone in the class literally said, amen. I was like, this is... This is powerful. People are on board with her. And then right at the end, right when I was like, sign me up for whatever you're about, girl. Like I, was, I was in it with her. Uh, she goes, that's why I could never get on board with Christianity. And I was like, what's that now? Because um, I was with her. Like I was, I, I was in the trailer behind just wherever we're going. You're dragging me with you. She was... She was motivated and I was going and then she said that's why I could never get on board with Christianity and she talked about how the Bible she talked about how specifically the New Testament advocates for slavery and she referenced these verses that we just read here in Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9 and, and so so we need to do something with this. Like we need to acknowledge that there is not a specific verse or passage where the New Testament explicitly calls for the abolition of slavery. And let's just be honest, that's how this word for bond servant could be 
translated. It's the, it's the word doulos. It, it, most of the time in the New Testament is translated as the word servant. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this word is in Acts 16, where there's this girl in Philippi. Uh, she's basically a victim of human trafficking, and, and she's following Paul. The way it presents this is she's like following Paul around town, just shouting over and over again at him. And, and it says, I love this, because it says that Paul became greatly annoyed with her. I just, I don't know why. I just love the fact that Paul is honest about that. Like she is super annoying and I want her to stop talking. And what she was saying, she was crying out, these men are servants of the most high God. That's that word servants uh, of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Here's another reason I love that story. I love that story because it proves that you can be saying something true, but the way you say it can make it really, really annoying. That's something you, you might, if you're a note taker, write that down. All right. Uh, it's something we could learn collectively as a people today. Just because you're right doesn't mean you need to say it that way. And so uh, she's, she's actually proclaiming the truth. She's going like, these men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Paul's like, yep, yep, that's, that's true. We are servants of the Most High God. Yep, check, that's the box, is correct. But it's just that she's so annoying about it that it's driving him nuts. And I love that. They're servants of God. And out of the 126 times... That this word is used in the New Testament, that word doulos, the 126 times in our New Testament, the English Standard Version that we use here translates it 94 times as servants. That's the way we typically see that translated. It's almost 75% of the time. And then 19 times it's translated as slaves. Y'all can tell I spent my week just counting this word all through the New Testament. No, I've got a program that does it for me. It's super easy. Um, translated 19 times as the word slaves and then remaining 13 times, like our passage today, is translated as bondservants. I say all that to point out that the master-slave, the master-bondservant relationship was very common in the ancient world. Like it was ordinary. It was normal. It was prevalent, right? Most scholars estimate there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million slaves in effectively the known world at that time. Many suggest that upwards of maybe 35% of the population of the major cities like Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city. That about 35% of those could have been made up of slaves. And so ultimately, we just need to understand that that it's the New Testament. It's not that the New Testament ignores slavery. It's that it addresses it, but it addresses it in such a way that the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei, of the image of God in man, and the Christian ethic of love for neighbor, that's what ultimately leads men like William Wilberforce to, to call for the abolition of slavery in England. That's what ultimately leads to uh, the American <coughs> abolition of slavery. So, so I'm not trying to soften the historical reality here. I will tell you that most of first century slavery in the Roman Empire looked very different than the sort of African slave trade that we think about when we think of American history. But I don't want to minimize this, and so I want to be careful here. A lot of times people will get up there and they'll soften this by saying, well, the, slavery was very, very different there. But if 60 million people are experiencing something, no two people are experiencing it the same. Because so I don't want to minimize what those who've gone before us experienced. To be a slave, to be a bondservant, is to be a person legally bound to serve their master. There's benevolent masters and there are... Well, you've had good bosses and you've had bad bosses. And the unfortunate reality is that in Paul's time in human history, slavery was so common, it was so ordinary. And as one commentator put it, he said, for Paul to advocate for the immediate abolition of slavery would have been a recipe for social anarchy 
and the intense persecution of the church throughout the Roman Empire. You see, it was this multifaceted slavery, bondservant. It touched every aspect of human existence. But the other reason we don't see an explicit call, especially in this passage, is really a matter of priorities. And this is a good reminder for me as a pastor, and I think it's a good reminder for all of us as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's first priority, his first priority, was not social change. It was not what some today call social justice. That's a very popular term that flies around a lot. No, it's, it's not that he didn't care about those things, okay? It's not that Paul, it's not that Jesus didn't care about those things. The gospel does speak to those causes. God does address issues of justice in his, in his world. He's a God of both righteousness and justice. Psalm 97.2 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so God is interested in and cares about how people live and move and and engage with one another. He is socially interested. We have a social Trinitarian God. He is in himself a community. He is interested. And the words of the prophets and the apostles reflect that. We see the nature and the character of God in the Bible. That's the first thing that we look for. So Paul cares about the social issue, but his first priority, here's Paul's first priority. I need you to remember this as we go through this. His first priority is the reconciliation of sinners, both those who are free and those who are slaves, those who are male and those who are female, those who are old and those who are young, is to see them reconciled to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That is his first priority. The church gets in a lot of trouble when we miss on that priority. When we begin to make the world's priorities our priorities, we begin to swing against what God is calling us to do. That's his first priority. It's our chief end that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this reflects the priorities of Jesus, because the other place we see the nature and character of God is we see the nature and character of God in Jesus. That's one of the reasons why over in Mark 8, 36, Jesus asks, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Do you remember that? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It's not that he doesn't care about the temporal. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about the temporal. Look, Jesus fed the hungry, Remember that? Jesus healed the sick. He, he welcomed the marginalized and the abused. And we're called to do the same work today. Jesus cares about the temporal, but he knows and Paul knows. And we need to know. Here, here's what we need to know. That for a slave in ancient history to gain his earthly freedom, only to live and prosper in this life and then die unreconciled to God, to die lost, to die dead in sin and without God, that would actually be a tragedy. And so his first priority here, reflecting God's priority, is their salvation. You know, we have the tendency to substitute the temporal for the eternal. We have the tendency to prioritize the momentary for the everlasting. But God paints a bigger picture for us. That's what he's inviting us into here. And what Paul's doing, addressing the bond servants. Here, here's what he's really doing. He's reminding them and everyone else, not just who they are, but whose they are. That's what Paul's doing right here. He's reminding them not just who they are, but whose they are. He's making it clear that just like the husbands and the wives and the children in their midst, just like everyone else in the family, they are members of the body of Christ. That their social standing, whatever that is on the outside, does not change who they are as members of the body of Christ. That goes the same for us. That's what we talked about last week, right, with the kids. 
Just because you're young, that doesn't make you any less valuable. College student, just because you're here for temporary, that does not make you any less valuable. Whether you end up, you are part of the body of Christ as we want to welcome you into the family right now. If you're a senior, we're not ready to sideline you. I'll get, I go, I'm going to get in trouble for doing this. But there, are, there are three women, all retirees, two of them widows, who show up every single week. Every single week. It's my favorite Thursday meeting. They show up, they walk in, they put on a great soundtrack, and they clean this entire building for us. That, that, that's how they serve. They have not given up. One of them, in the middle of cancer treatments, was like, I'll, I'll fold the worship, guys. And I'm like, please don't. Like, how, how do I... So anyway, I sat there with her and watched her do it, which probably was worse anyway. Um, <laughs> saying it out loud really, really makes it sound worse. So um, I can pray for my heart. I'm going to have to do some repenting to Miss Francis here pretty soon. Anyway, um, and now I just called her out by name, so I can expect a, an email this week. Um, uh, we, regardless of where you are in life, this is what Paul is communicating here. Slave, free, child, old, male, female, it doesn't matter. Whoever you are, you're part of the body of Christ today. That's one of the things we want to communicate here over and over again. They are just as much as the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so he's going in order of God's priority to their new creation identity in Christ. And we keep coming back to this. Like we have said those words, new creation, identity in Christ, every week for the past three months. We keep coming back to this. We've said those words over and over again during the study of Ephesians because it's so important. I just want to impress upon you over and over again that if you are in Christ, right? If you have entrusted Jesus with your eternal life, you are no longer who you used to be. Like you're not. You are a new creation in Him. And again, I think we swing and miss on this a lot. Like we hear it, we read it, we underline it. I have my new creation, but we don't live it. We still, on a daily basis, fall back into the old patterns. We still fall back into the old shame. We still fall back into and hold on to the old doubt and the old insecurities. We still try to carry the baggage of sin that Jesus took from us and upon himself at the cross. I think Andrew prayed it earlier today. He used the word imputation. We talk about double imputation here, that Jesus took our sin. That's our sin imputed to him, and he gives us his righteousness, his righteousness imputed to us. Some of us are still trying to carry the sin that Jesus already took from us. It's like the inverse of the scene in the Garden of Eden where the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of God by, by questioning his law. Do you remember that? Did God really say? Did God really say you couldn't do it? He's trying to get them to doubt. And only in this case, we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God by questioning his mercy. We doubt if his grace is truly sufficient. We doubt if his grace is truly enough for, to cover for us. We, we doubt that he could love us as we are. But if we look at verses 5 through 8 through the lens of God's grace and mercy, if we look at it through the lens of his goodness and love for us in Christ, if we have eyes to see with gospel clarity and eyes to, to see with gospel priority, we see how whoever we are, wherever we are, in whatever condition we are, we belong to Christ. So look back at verse 5. and That's the longest introduction you'll ever get. Sorry. There's verse 5. 
Paul says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Paul uses that same phrase over in Philippians 2.12 to encourage the church to work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. It's to approach all of life. Here's what that means. It doesn't mean to walk around scared of everything. It doesn't mean to, to, be, to be bowing down to everything around you. That's not what fear and trembling means. It's to approach all of life with the understanding of awe and reverence for what God has done for us. That as people who have been redeemed and reconciled in Him, that impacts every single thing that we do. It impacts how we raise our kids. It impacts how we use our free time. It impacts how we use our money and material resources. These are all impacted by the mercy received in Christ. Right? Like because you have received mercy, now what? You will be merciful. I mean, that's the thought. Because you have received grace, you will become gracious. What I'm saying is that it should be obvious. Here's what I'm saying. It should be obvious to the people around you, regardless of their spiritual condition, that you are a Christian. Like it should be obvious. This is what Paul is getting at. It's that transformation that happens as we walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ, daily becoming more and more like him in this life. And what we see in verses 5 through 8 really is, is the, what, what we might call it the fruit of a transformed heart. And the obvious parallel here for us as we sit here today, there's not a slave in here today, but there are employees, right? We all work for somebody. And so the obvious parallel here is to us is how we treat our employers. The obvious connection between ourselves and the bond servants is our status as employees. And so yes, God cares. Here's what that means. Yes, God cares about how you do your work. In his commentary on this passage, Kent Hughes summarizes verses 5 through 8 with four words. He gives four words for how we're meant to go about our jobs on this earth. He says we do them respectfully, we do them sincerely, we do them conscientiously, and we do them pleasantly. Like You should be the type of employee in your workplace that people want you to be there. I mean, that's about as boiled down as it can get. If you do your job respectfully, if you do it sincerely, if you do it conscientiously, if you do it pleasantly, you're going to be the type of person that they want there. That's sort of his summary for those commands to the bond servants and to us as employees today. And it, and it really can't be faked. I mean, you can try for a little while. Like you can maybe fake it for a few minutes, but it can't be faked for the long term. That's why Paul says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And we know those folks, right? Maybe you're like, yeah, I do. Um. No, it's that we go about our work in a way that shows our understanding that whoever we are for as long as we are there is where God has put us. And we should do that work as unto him. What does he say? As bond servants of Christ. You see that? Now, that really is the key to the entire packet, pa- passage as bond servants of Christ. That's the identity piece. That's the new creation identity that we have in Jesus. This is what Paul is getting at when he writes to the church in Corinth and and. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's, he's talking again about how the church, how the church demonstrates their new creation identity. As the church, he, he asks this, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? It's this rhetorical question. He's, like, he's, he's basically saying, he's going, maybe you've forgotten that Jesus is here. Like maybe you have forgotten that Jesus is here presently making his tabernacle in you, setting up his temple in you by his Holy Spirit. And then Paul reminds them of this profound gospel truth. Here's what he says. He says, you are not your own. 
Now that flies in the face of every bit of our American sort of Western independent idea that I am my own man, that you are your own woman, or you are whatever you want to be based on what our culture says. You can just pick whatever you want. Our son made a joke last night. He's like, I identify as a refrigerator now. And we were like, I don't know what pronoun you use for that. Um, But that's kind of the world we live in. You just pick and choose what you want to be because you are in control. We believe in human sovereignty. Well, Well, the Bible just goes, well, obviously not. No, you are not your own. And here's what he said, for you were bought with a price. You see, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I think some of us have forgotten how expensive we are. Like it's almost like we live in this tension, this sort of pendulum that swings between between doubting whether Jesus could actually pay the price for all of our sin and doubting that our sin really costs that much. And both of those things are lies. All right, Both of these, doubting that Jesus is sufficient and doubting that we really need Jesus, they, they both lead us out of the vintage community established and purchased by Christ and into the sort of cheap knockoff religion that the world wants us to buy. Where we're sovereign. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he called this cheap grace. And I love this quote from him. He, he said this, he said, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It's the grace we give ourselves. It makes ourselves in control. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. He said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You you see, your life cost Jesus his life. I mean, that was the payment. Your sin cost him his perfect righteousness. That that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? It's it's what we sing, that, that, that his blood was the payment, that his life was the cost. And not only was he willing because of the great love with which he loved us, but he was also able. Not only was he willing, he was also able. And he was faithful to do it. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's, and there's a social dimension to it. The gospel doesn't just come and transform our relationship with God. Now that's the first reality, right? That's the first reality of God's grace is that it transforms our relationship with God. But the gospel comes to transform all our relationships with one another. And Jesus reinforced this all the time. Think of Matthew 22, where Jesus gives the greatest commandment. You remember this scene? We've actually mentioned this several times in the last few weeks. I think, I think there's a theme here that Paul's getting to, where he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says what? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says this is the great and first commandment, or first and greatest commandment. So that's the first reality, that sort, of, that sort of vertical reconciliation that takes place between us and God. But then he continues. Jesus, completely unprompted. Nobody asked him. That's important. They said, what's the first commandment? He gave him the first commandment. He said, well, hold on, before you go away, here's the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, this is the transforming power of the gospel at work on the ground. Like not just in our lives, but in every single one of our relationships. Who's my neighbor? What does he say? He basically just leaves them with that question. Everyone's your neighbor. Look at this, Ian Hamilton said, Behind all that Paul writes here is the conviction that people need not only to hear, but also to see the gospel. 
It's a humbling thing to consider. I want you to consider this. The fact that you're alive this morning, whether you are sitting in this room, watching on a screen, we might have somebody in here nursing a baby right now over here in the nursing room. Like wherever you are right now, if you're alive, that God, if you have a beating heart in your chest and you have breath in your lungs, it's a humbling thing to think about the fact that God has preserved you so that you can walk as visible fruit of gospel transformation. That what are you supposed to do today? I am supposed to image the grace of God in Christ to whoever is watching. Like your waking up this morning was not an accident. That in, that in your, like by your profession of faith and by your demonstration of faith, you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like, this is a purpose statement for all believers. It doesn't say if you're in this type of workplace, or if you've got this type of boss, or if you have these type of employees. And by the way, everyone's included. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Paul says, masters do the same to them. You see how the gospel always kind of levels the playing field? The gospel always brings us all to the same level ground. So what do you say? The very first thing he says is, masters do the same to them. What What are the slaves doing? Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. You see, it doesn't matter whether you are the employer or the employee. How you treat people, how you treat the people around you is meant to be. God has a design for your relationships with the people around you. They must and shall be a witness to the gospel transformation that's taken place in your life. This is the work of faith. That's what James was talking about when he said, faith without works is dead. This is the work of faith. How you treat the people you work with and how you engage in the work that you are called to do is actually this living parable of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. It's a visible demonstration for us to see of who you are, of your new creation identity in Him. It's not, just a, it's not just a demonstration of who you are, but, but again, more importantly, whose you are. That you have been bought with a price. How we treat others is a defining mark of who we are in Jesus. It's a defining mark of who we belong to in Christ. And any abuse of authority, you see that stop your threatening right there? I don't really know what that word means. There's a lot of speculations of what it means. Like, is it a guy with a whip or is it just my, I'm going to fire you tomorrow? We don't really know. But he says, stop your threatening. Any abuse of authority in the home, in the workplace, or even in the church is a mark against our witness. It is. Because, because here it is. Because all abuse is an affront to the gospel itself. You see, God shows no partiality. Well, what if they're grumpy? You're grumpy too. What if they're lazy? Encourage them. What if they're tired? Give them rest. He doesn't measure you by your job title or your earthly success. He measures you by the life of his son. This is the true reality of how God looks at us. He measures us by Jesus. This is, the, this is why the gospel life is so countercultural. It's because it, it, it's because it's not about keeping up with the Joneses, but walking in the way of Jesus. The way we say it is we walk in the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You see, that is the way of Jesus. He's the one who proclaims, I am making all things new. He doesn't say I'm making some things, I'm making all things new. 
That's the way of Jesus. That's the way we're called to. And his way is better. Actually, his way is best. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,